0: Good morning that was pathetic good morning that's better that's better i bring you greetings from the north campus your brothers and sisters in christ it's great to be back here iona and i miss central campus a lot but i have been exiled (laughs) until i shape up and it's not looking too hopeful so I get to be with you this morning and open the Word of God. What greater privilege can a person have than to share the Word with those that he loves? So uh, if you want to turn open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21 this morning, that's where we're going to be. Uh, We've been in the series on the resurrection uh, ever since Easter. And this morning, we're going to complete that series with a sermon on the resurrection and eternity. Because Jesus Christ is risen and is no longer in his tomb, we as his adopted children can enjoy the fruit of the resurrection, right, in which we have eternal life in the presence of God, our Father, and of course, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're gonna kind of break that apart, look at it this morning and see what exactly that means. Uh, We're not gonna tackle the entire book of Revelation. We're focused on just one paragraph. But even that, we have to do some background work. The key to understanding the book of Revelation, which for most people for centuries has been shrouded in mystery, is to understand the entire work of scripture, because what we're going to see is that the Apostle John, who was credited with authoring this book, borrows a lot from the prophetic words of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, other New Testament writers, but also from a group of men who wrote books that didn't quite make it into the canon, uh, which some of them are grouped into the study of the Apocrypha, And yet they had a tremendous influence upon uh, New Testament Christians, especially those from the Jewish faith. And so as we read through this, we're going to be able to discern that John is using phrases and terms that the people that were going to read this book would have had some acquaintance with. Now, the Gentile readers, as they came to this book, since that wasn't their background, we're going to be a little confused, so John does try to make it as clear as he can. In my lifetime, I've seen many people expound the book of Revelation. Uh, back in the 70s, if you're old enough to remember those days, uh, it was very common for evangelical preachers to have the proverbial bedsheet up on the book of Revelation, and we're trying to determine what? The question of when. When is Christ returning? And all kinds of theories were posited to us. Um, None of them were right. How how many of you can remember saying, oh, Jesus is going to return by the year 2000? Uh, (laughs) Now we heard that a lot. But today, we're not going to go into the when question. We're going to go into the what question. What does it mean to have eternity with God? Sounds like an amazing thing. Well, it is. So let's just jump right into our passage We're going to start in chapter 21, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers... Will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on this. Father, we just come to you this morning as we're trying to discern what you are trying to encourage us with, which is words that give us particulars about our destiny if we know your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. I pray for all of us who are in the family of God this morning as we listen to the words uh, that your faithful apostle wrote so many years ago that we'll be encouraged, we'll be inspired, we'll be motivated. And Father, we'll be motorized to get up and to live our lives for you to not look to have rest in this life but to give everything that we have so that we might have blessed rest in the afterlife and father for those who may be here this morning who are either listening online or maybe in presence here that do not know you father may they hear the hope of the gospel may their hearts be quickened to desire jesus christ as their lord and savior and may they not leave here father without making certain That their future is set. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna look at this and we're gonna split it up into three main points, right? We have the promise of recreation, we have the promise of renewal, and we have the promise of redemption. So, let's take a look at the first one the promise of recreation. And I have to say it that way to put it all together in one word without a hyphen, you would get recreation, right? The promise of recreation and who doesn't want to go to an eternity where you're promised never-ending recreation but that would be a little misleading That is a quirk of the English language what we're really trying to say is that creation is going to have a facelift there's something new that is going to happen and John starts off right there in verse 1 I saw a new heaven and a new earth now there are a couple of different words that the Apostle could have used for newness he chooses to use a word that doesn't necessarily mean new as in time, but new as in quality. This is a transformation. And this is important because sometimes we get the idea that everything that currently exists, God is going to trash it. It's going to be just destroyed. And God's going to start over much as he did in Genesis chapter 1, right? But that's not the case here. God is saying, I'm going to transform what already exists. It's going to get a facelift. It's a qualitative transformation of the old creation rather than a new creation, ex nihilo, or from nothing. Uh, The apostle Paul himself gives us a hint of this in Romans chapter 8 when he writes, beginning in verse 13, For I consider... That the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul is basically saying this, that since the fall with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, up until the events that we're reading about now through the book of Revelation, creation has been in pain. That which God created and said, this is good, this is good, this is good is now groaning like a woman in childbirth. Uh, For our ladies here today, I don't know how many of you experience a prolonged labor in giving birth. Uh, With our first child, it was some 27 hours that my poor wife was in labor. Nothing like the centuries and centuries, millennia, that the earth has been groaning under the power of sin begging for the day when God is going to do exactly what is described here. I saw a new heaven, a new earth. Creation is going to be freed from the power of sin. That is one of the benefits. Isaiah 66 verse 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. God is going to redo it. And then he gives us a curious phrase there at the end of verse 1. And the sea was no more. What in the world does the sea have to do with anything? It's my belief that the sea here is a metaphor for all that is evil, for all that is represented by the fallenness of sin, right? So the sea could be the origin of cosmic evil. The sea is the unbelieving, rebellious nations. The sea is the place of the dead, The sea is representative of the place of the world's idolatry, according to Revelation chapter 12. So, when the new creation comes, John's just trying to say this, when the new creation comes, there will be no threat from Satan, because he will have been permanently judged and excluded from this new creation, nor will there be any threat from rebellious nations, since they have suffered the same fate as Satan. Neither will there be death ever again in this new world, so that there's no room for the sea as the place of the dead. But even if we take this literally as the perception of that dark, murky place of the sea, uh, this is also it's saying is, it's not going to be the way it is in the future. Um, the new characterization of the new cosmos will be one of peace. There will be no mystery as to what lies underneath the surface of the water. Literal seas separate nation from nation. And they separated John, the author of this book, from his beloved churches. But in the new creation, no such separation can be. Since all are in close fellowship with one another and with God. What else is he saying here? And he says, oh, in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, right? Right? New Jerusalem. John is borrowing from a prophetic words in Isaiah chapter 52 when it says, Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Not surprisingly, this language gives us an idea that the captivity, the uh, suppression or oppression of the city of Jerusalem will be no more. These were Words of sustenance to those who are reading this book or hearing it read out loud. Yes, Jerusalem will have its final destiny, that which God originally determined it to be. But Jerusalem is more than just a city; it is the symbol of God's presence, of His uh, dwelling with people. It says in uh, the Revelation, and excuse me, in Isaiah fifty. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be remade, reconfigured. We see this in a wedding imagery as well in Isaiah 62. And I love this section of scripture, so listen carefully here to what I'm saying. For Zion's sake, Zion is a synonym for Jerusalem, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her unrighteousness, excuse me, her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord is going to give to you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer have the name forsaken. You shall no longer be known as desolate. But you shall be called, and in the original Hebrew it just says, my delight is in her. That's going to be Jerusalem's name. My delight is in her. And your land will be called married. For the the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom in this case god rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you this wedding imagery is common throughout scripture in the old testament it often is referring to the nation of israel god loved her desired her uh, honored her but she wasn't faithful in the new testament it's the church Oh, how much I wanted to be with you. 2 Corinthians 11, chapter two, or verse 2 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin for Christ. But by the time we get to the end times here, whether or not the bride is ready, whether or not the bride has been faith, all that is done away with. God sees his people, the ones that he wants to dwell with for all eternity, as being His bride. He dresses her in resplendent clothing. He honors her with a feast. He does everything he can to make his bride feel welcomed and ready. And in case you haven't caught that yet, that's us. Right? That's us. We get to be with God. He is anticipating this moment like a young man anticipates seeing his bride come down the aisle. It is the culmination of all the courtship and the wooing. And the events that have happened, the introduction of families and the giving of gifts. God is ready for this marriage to take place. And he has been ready for centuries. He has had to wait for sin to no longer mar his bride. For the evils of the world to no longer beset his city. When Jerusalem appears, she is ready. And that is us. Also, it says that God will live with his people. Uh, John is trying to conjure up ideas that we've heard all through Scripture of covenant relationship of the Father with his people. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them I am the Lord their God Zechariah chapter 2 this is my favorite part in this prophecy sing and rejoice O daughter of Zion for behold I come I come what a promise I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Remember, this is a prophecy. This isn't happening in the day of Zechariah. He is telling the nation of Israel, at some point, this is going to be truth. John is picking that up, and he's saying, yes, it will be at this time. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in their midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion of the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. God will live with his people. That was the way it was designed to be from the days of the tabernacle to the days of the temple to the time in which we as God's people are his temple. And in the future, we don't need that. We don't need temples because the temple, that sacred spot, God himself will be in the midst of us. He will be in our presence. We'll have access to him like no one else has had. New Jerusalem is the temple city, right? John wants his readers to be reminded of all that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, as I just said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And I love this part, you're not your own. You don't have ownership any longer as Christians over who you are. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In the end days here, everyone who's in the presence of God will live in such a fashion with the knowledge that God is in our presence, right? It also says that many nations, they, in verse 3, they were going to be there. It's not just one person. It's not just a significant other a great partner it's they isaiah uh, says that 19 uh, chapter 19 verse 25 speaking about other nations being there at the end of the covenant promises zechariah 2 that i just read says that my people will be there and the nations of the world will be there this is a final gathering god's tabernacling presence in our life is amazing the people of israel we're used to thinking in terms of God being in the presence, but who got to actually see God? Who actually got to be with God? It wasn't everyone. Yeah, It might have been limited by the time the Old Testament was closing to a few Zadokite priests who got to go into God's presence once a year, but it wasn't everyone. Uh, maybe the Levites got to perform priestly functions around the outskirts of the temple of the Holy of Holies, but we as Gentiles, we weren't even allowed to come into that site. That wasn't what was going on, right? Gentiles were considered aliens. We weren't allowed to be part of that, that process of, of worshiping at the temples, right? Right? It was, it's clear that from what the Old Testament say, it's impossible for a Gentile to partake of Israel's promises. We couldn't do it. But the truth is, by the time we get to the end times, everyone is represented by Jesus Christ. The ideal king and Israelite, Jesus, is considered the true Israel, and he says, let them in. Bring them all in. Anybody who knows me as Savior, I don't care what your nation, race, or creed is, come in here, and we get to come into his presence. So we have a promise of recreation. Things are going to look so different than they do right now. Secondly, we have a promise of renewal. What's it going to be like to live in the presence of God? Uh, the Apostle John wants us to have an understanding that if we read verses 4 and 5 again, just to get a reminder of this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's the end of sorrows, right? In the end times, there'll be no more death. There'll be no mourning or crying, no pain. Isaiah 25, which John is borrowing from as he writes this, says he will swallow up death forever. Have we not experienced a year of death this past year? Haven't we, most of us, known someone who has died from COVID? But even if not... Then we know others who have died of cancer, who've died of other diseases, those who have died of, of violence, those who have died in accidents. But he's going to swallow up death. I can't even imagine what life would be like to go through it and not even worry about that kind of stuff. I pray for my daughters every morning. You know, I've got one daughter that drives from here to Lone Tree to teach school. I've got a daughter in Houston, that, uh, who knows what craziness is on their interstates, and every day I pray for their safety, knowing full well that in God's economy that may not be his will, but I'm still going to pray for it. Man, how much of my day would be freed up if I didn't have to worry about that stuff? Now i got grandkids. Mm. It's not enough that I have to worry about the kids, now I'm going on to grandkids, and they're all three boys, which means they're morons, just like my brother and I were, <laughs> Right? They're going to do things. I was there yesterday over at my other daughter's house and uh, little Edmund was there and he decided it'd be a good time to climb up on this wood deck. That was a lot of fun. And I'm watching him from about 20 yards away and he just walks off to the edge of the deck and I'm saying, no, Edmund. And he looks right at me and takes a step and he just goes head over heels about a half foot drop and all four of his limbs are sticking straight up in the air and I'm waiting for the howl sound, you know, ah! nothing came. He just kind of stood up and brushed stuff off and looked at me, smiled, and tried to climb back up again. (laughs) No more sorrow. No more death. No mourning or crying. No pain. In the final state, death will be no more. That's amazing. Uh, Both Isaiah 35 and 51 predict that the time of Israel's full restoration to God, people will experience everlasting exultation and joy. If you're not worried about all this stuff, what replaces it? It's not going to be an empty vacuum where you're sitting around saying, well, gee, if I can't worry, what will I do with my life, right? No, it's going to be filled with glory, with joy. Oh, man, it sounds like so much fun. They will experience such gladness because they will be protected from the former sufferings of pain and grief and groaning, which have fled away, as it says in the Septuagint therefore, John continues here, the line of thought that the bliss of the eternal state is the fulfillment of prophecy. That is an amazing thing. God is saying, this will be your future. And then he says in verse 5 to John, a curious statement, write this down. Everything that you just heard, write it down, right? Why? Because these words are trustworthy and true. Wow. These same words are also said in chapter 22 and verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. God seems to want John to understand that everything that he is saying, this is not a hope. This is not a maybe. This is not something that could be. But this is trustworthy. You can bank on it. It's going to happen. And it's true. Now, the word for true. In the Old Testament, the word for truth is amen. Amen. Right? God is the Amen. And what I love is that earlier in the book, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus himself is called the Amen, the true one, the faithful, and the witness. By the way that Jesus lived his life, died on that cross, broke the power of death and sin, and was risen from the dead. If that all happened, if we can believe that, then we can believe all of this. That's basically what is being said here write it down because this is truth i have said it power and then we look at the promise of redemption god says it is done like jesus in john 1930 when he's hanging on that cross and he says it is finished john is trying to get us to think of that everything that god has promised everything that we know about the future this is kind of like coming to the end of the third book of the Lord of the Rings. You're thinking, holy cow, will this never end? This is just going to go on and on and on. But when we get to the end of Revelation, God says, no, it is finished. That which we know about, the purpose of history, the plan of God, the salvation-revelation link is going to end right here. And then what God has planned after this, is your imagination. It's his direct purpose. But for all these things, it is done. All things that had to be accomplished, it is done. All things that needed to occur in order for us to have salvation, it is done. All the people that are going to be judged, those who are going to be separated, the quick and the dead, it has happened. If you find yourself in the gathering of this new Jerusalem, if you are part of God's called people, and you are there, it is done. No more worries. No more uh, fretting over whether or not you belong. No more sin. No more crying. It is done. God's purpose in history is complete. He also says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. John goes out of his way to give us that sense of God saying, I've got it handled. Uh, This was a common figure of speech back in ancient writings, called merisms. Uh, That is where we have a figurative point to mention the opposite poles of something in order to emphasize the totality of all that lies within. John could have just as easily said, Genesis 1.1 to Revelation chapter 22, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. If it was the Old Testament, he would have said, I am the Aleph and I am the Tal. Right? I am the beginning and I am the end. Everything that has happened. Everything that has taken place. I have been sovereign over. I am God. Nothing was by chance. Nothing that happened was outside of his knowledge. We live our lives. And sometimes it's easy to look at some of the things, especially the disastrous things that happen, and we think, was God? Where is he? How come... That person that I loved had to die. Why did that person have to perish? Why did that area of the country have to experience this terrible natural devastation? And God is just saying to John, I was there. I understand that. And I think the promise is that in this future time, as much as possible, we are going to have a complete understanding that God was there, that he is sovereign. The book of Job so focuses on this. God, if you could just come in my presence, Job says, if I just had three minutes with you, I I would tell you how unjust you have been to take my children, to afflict me with sickness, to take away my wealth, when I have been but a righteous man and an obedient servant before you. You've allowed all this to happen. Boy, if I just had three minutes with you, I would convince you and I would ask you, why, why, why? And at the end of the book, when God comes into his presence, does he answer, Job? Not really. He just says, were you there at the beginning of the world? You know, do you know where the giant sea creatures go? Do you know where the wind comes from and how it's going to blow? And Job just had to keep answering, no, not really. No, not really. No, not really. But in the book of Revelation, God is assuring us, I was there. I understood everything that was happening. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And nothing happened between these two poles that I was not in charge of, that I was absent from, that I couldn't handle. God was there. And we are going to have the satisfaction of knowing that he was there, that knowing that he was in charge. We are going to be there because of that very sovereign act of his. It's amazing. It's amazing. The point of this title that God takes to himself, the Alpha and the Omega, is to transcend time. He guides the entire course of history because he stands as sovereign over its beginning and end. Therefore, the two titles here refer to God's absolute sovereignty over all things. Then he says that we will have water of life without payment. Wow. Wow. In Isaiah 55, 1, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. This has long been a promise in Israeli prophetic history. Day will come when you who live in the desert, when you who travail in a semi-arid climate, when you who would love to have all the water that you could possibly take It's going to happen. the The word here for water is really a fountain. It's an explosion of abundance of water. John is telling his people, that which sustains life, that water of life, is going to be yours, and it's going to be free. Wow. They've never experienced anything like this, right? They didn't know that this was possible. The living water's are actually supposed to be representative of eternal life they have their origin in God and the lamb this is the life of eternal fellowship with God in Christ so when you read that you will have waters of life without payment he's basically saying you're going to have salvation and it costs you nothing it costs Jesus everything but that's the way that God wanted it. That's the way that God determined it. This fellowship is reserved for those who have maintained their life in the Lamb's atoning death and their testimony to his redemptive work. Of those with such faith, they can have access to the springs of water on the basis of grace without cost. It can be had for nothing, freely. I don't know what you desire in your life. I don't know what you want. But when we are removed of sin and those things that cloud our judgment, which make our thoughts impure, when we can just focus on who we were designed to be, created to be in God, what will we want? What will we desire? Well, it seems to indicate that we'll want more of God. And that's what the springs of water are supposed to be. We we will have access to that without payment won't cost you anything. Being rich or being poor, those are no longer have any significance. No one will be rich. No one will be poor. We'll be saved. We'll be in the grace and presence of God. This whole section, if anything, is just an invitation to those who are weary of the trauma of life. Have you had days where your day ends and you think, "Oh God, I don't know if I can take any more? It's been so hard. I'm so tired of fighting the same battles. I'm so tired of all of the things that I fail in, that I don't meet your expectations in. I'm tired of trying to earn enough money to live well, to provide for my family. All those things that we can think that make us go gray haired, right? That make our shoulders stoop, that make our souls sag. God says, "Now nah, you come. I've got just the cure for you. When you go into his presence, you will experience the springs of water without payment. Amazing promise. He also says that we have to overcome suffering. It's a time where we have to do that. It's an amazing. By itself, suffering does not qualify us, right, for eternal life. He says very clearly you must overcome that's who he's going to bless i want to take those who have overcome he uses the word conquers the one who conquers will have this heritage what's this heritage all these things that are promised overcomers are those whose lives are characterized by refusal to compromise their faith despite the threat of persecution. You have to put yourself back in the historical context of what John is saying here. In his day, in the first century, as he's writing this, the big problem for the church was the threat of persecution. The Romans did not like the Christians because they viewed them as atheists. They refused to honor the emperor as God. And many times, Christians throughout the first and second century were put to the test. Deny your faith in Jesus Christ, and you may live. Do ritual worship to the emperor, and you may live. It was a real problem. And John is saying, overcomers are those who are able to stand for Jesus Christ within their culture and not succumb to the pressure. That's what he means by overcomers, the conquerors. They ironically conquer when they maintain their faith, even though the world may see them as failures because they suffered and in some cases they even died. The world just doesn't understand. They don't understand the high price that Jesus requires, the high price of loyalty, the high price of living our faith. The process of overcoming commences before death. The focus here is on the completion of the process at the end of one's life. Are you going to live faithfully to the last day that Jesus has for you? That's what it means to overcome. Uh, You look through the scriptures, you don't see a lot of guys that make it to the last days. They, They fail. They fall. And John is saying that can't be. You can't compromise with the world. You can't depend on your own strength. You can't fall to persecution's temptation and deny Christ. And he loads this book of Revelation with the fulfillment of the promises from God if we do overcome. He says things like this multiple inheritance could be the tree of life in chapter 2, which is in the paradise of God, that which God created in the Garden of Eden, you will also now inherit. He says in chapter 3 that you'll get to be members of the new temple. He says a participation in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, In several chapters, the name of God will be placed upon you. You get a new name. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. You get bright garments. You have a bright stone. And it says a luminary or a light will be part of you. You'll be reigning with Christ, according to chapters 2, 3, and 22. And you have exclusion from what is called the second death. The figurative point of all these multiple pictures of in time blessings is interpreted at the conclusion of verse 7 to be God's presence with his people. I will be God to him, and he will be a son to me. This repeats the promise of God's presence, which was given in verse 3 originally. So what we see here in this kind of yoked section of Scripture, these two paragraphs, is that on one hand, there's all this promise of positive blessing. And it's going to conclude here with all of the destructive things that will happen to those who betray the name of Christ. Saints are fully in Christ. Those who know Christ, they're fully with him. But he says there will be those who will be disobedient. And the disobedience, according to John, will be damned. Uh, If you look back in verse 7, he says, "...the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be their God, and he'll be my son." But as for, and then he starts listening, the cowardly, the faithless, and so forth. It's a very uh, negative portrayal for some of us. Uh, The idea is you're going to be kept out of the city. This new Jerusalem that's being made, uh, you're outside of it. Now in John's day, who was kept outside of cities? Well, people like foreigners, traders, uh, prostitutes. The difference is they were just made to camp outside the city. They were allowed every day to go in and ply their trade. But in this image, outside of the city means you're separated from God. It's hell, right? And we know that because of where he goes at this point, how he ends this section. Uh, It's eternal separation from God himself. That's the ultimate judgment. And then there's language of inheritance. Their place will be what? The lake of fire. Now, you could take that as an idea that this is a literal lake of fire. Think of the ironic contrast there, fire and water. Well, if it's a lake of fire, how can there be water? But I think he's trying to say, just like the sea will pass away, the lake of fire is metaphoric for the idea that such horrible things are in store for those who reject Christ, that you can't understand it. I think in John's wording, this is the way that he was able to say it is going to be horrible. It was the most graphic and uh, horrible words that he could think of, but I think it's going to even be much more so. There's a second death that is contrasted with the glorious life of the saint. And who's not going to inherit it again? Keep in mind those who reject Christ, who cannot stand a persecution. He calls them cowards, those who fear persecution unbelieving those who are faithless in the midst of testing detestable they're vile right it means sexually immoral and those who practice idolatry murderers those who betrayed christians possibly to the government right they caved in or would not meet a fellow christian's needs uh, he says this later in one of his epistles first john chapter three if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? They are sexually immoral. In Revelation, there was probably a spiritual connotation with this, like those who visited the temple prostitutes and so forth. It's a sharp contrast with the pure bride that the church is supposed to be. The sorcerers, those who practice the magic arts, any deceptive tool of demons, right? Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, right? Idolaters, liars, false prophets, there were those who claimed to be apostles and they weren't those who claimed to know the word of God and they didn't, but their goal was to lead others astray to keep them away from the truth of the word. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John lists all kinds of sins and sometimes we look at that and we say, well, I thought I had eternal life from the moment I accepted Christ. I think what we see here is people who profess Christ, but never really actually know Christ. I don't think what's in doubt here is the salvation of those who truly walk with God. I think what we see here are people who had joined the church, act like they belong to the church, but actually never really live for Christ. It's something that which cause us each to examine our lives and make sure we're living it for the, same, for the right purposes. I think there's two things going on here as we conclude this morning that I really want to focus on. One is what's the greatest present you have ever been given? Something that was totally unexpected. It was more than just a nice birthday and nice Christmas gift. This was a, a gift from someone that just changed your life. Have you had a present like that? Have you had something like that? I was trying to think in my own life what that might be. John is saying this in his first few verses. You've been given, Christian, great presents. Look at all the things that God is going to do for you. No more mourning, no more crying, right? The waters of eternal life. The presence of God. I will be your God, you will be my children. Wow, talk about life changing. Because of that, think about that. The person who gave you that present, what was your heart attitude towards that person after you received that present? It's gratitude. It's what can I do to please you? Some of us might even think, I couldn't even accept it because I had no way of matching it in return. And just like that, Jesus has given us a gift that we can't possibly return. The only thing that we can give him, and I think this is John's point, is to live our lives fully for God. We don't look forward to retirement as Christians. We don't look forward to living a life of ease as Christians. We're supposed to look forward to the day that we die of giving 100% of who we are to Christ so that we are pleasing to him. And then secondly, the other thing is, is that there's a description of the final judgment, the lake of fire, not having part of this inheritance. That should scare us. That should motivate us. If we know people who don't know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we're still alive and we have an opportunity to change their eternal destiny, that has got to be our goal. I think that's why the, the disciples did this. You know, John, we're told in church history himself, the author of this book, that he suffered persecution for Christ. They tried to kill him. It says that they couldn't do it. They tried to put him in a vat of boiling oil. And it had no impact on him, much like Daniel's friends in the, in the furnace. So they exiled him to this little island of Patmos where he had the vision of the book of Revelation. But he spent his life witnessing for Christ to those that would listen. So did Paul. So did Thomas. So did Matthew. So did all the disciples. They gave it all for Christ. We have a commission. It's not just about what am I going to receive, and you know, what the great presents are that I'm going to get, it's also a motivator. I think John is hoping for us to see a motivator to protect those that we love from coming to, uh, to come to Christ. We don't want them to experience this damnation. In my junior year of high school, I spent a whole semester standing outside of my high school doors early in the morning with a friend. I'll call him Mike and I shared with him almost every morning as a new Christian what I was in hope for and I had heard so much about prophecy and that Jesus was coming and I remember saying to him one day it's gonna happen you're gonna look around and all the Christians you know are gonna be gone and then you'll have just but a window of time to get your heart right before Christ so that you can go to heaven and I'm sad to say I never could convince him of that in fact Uh, that summer we weren't around each other he went out of his way to uh, spread all kinds of rumors about me. It made him so uncomfortable he didn't like that and he told people I was into drugs and so forth and I literally had people that next fall when I went in for my senior year saying to me, Foster (coughs) wow you look so different, we thought you would be you know, a different person we have to make every effort Every person that we try with, I, I don't know, Ione I and I were talking about this guy. Did he ever accept Christ? As far as I know, he didn't. But there are many others that came to Christ. People that I put a word into as a high schooler, then lost track of, who now I know are walking with Christ. Someone else completed the story, completed the picture with them, and now we'll be sharing eternity together. Who is in your life that doesn't know Christ? Who in your life would you like to see uh, avoid damnation? The things that John describes here. That has got to be our purpose. It's great to focus on the good things that will happen to us, but it's even more motivating for us to spend every opportunity we have in sharing what we believe with those who need to hear it. That is what God's commission is for us as Christians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. May you just, Father, give us that opportunity. Give us the courage, the boldness to share what we believe with those who need to hear. We love you. We thank you for the gifts that you're going to give us, the presence that you lay before us. Father, all we can do is say thank you